and his parents are out there now with him. He's not in good shape, but, um, you know, anyway. Uh, I got to get, uh, I got to get all this emotion out of me. Uh, <laughs> um, the story I'm about to tell you, you can actually read the full story in a book called uh, Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson. Uh, Don is the father of a, uh, a friend of mine, um, the president of... Um, Pioneers. I don't know if they call him president or U.S. director or whatever he is. Um, but his father wrote this book called Eternity in Their Hearts. A, a, like a, it's a collection of stories of how God has communicated to different people groups and peoples throughout history. It's a really cool, cool book. But uh, this is from the first chapter. If you want to pick up the book and read it, you can hear the whole story. Um, but it's based on a tradition, oral tradition, that was recorded as history and I hope I get these names right, by Diogenes Laertius, a Greek uh, author in in his classical work called uh, The Lives of Eminent Philosophers. Uh, Plato, in his writing Laws, uh, also writes of the main character of our story and corroborates some of the details. Aristotle, in his Art of Rhetoric, uh, also identifies some of the details. And Pausinius, in his Description of Greek, and Philostratus, in his work, Apollonius of Tiana, if I say that correctly, uh, both refers to the, refer to the details of this story as well. So it's recorded by these, these writers, authors, philosophers, as a, a story that actually happened. And so sometime during the 6th century, uh, before Christ, in a council chamber on Mars Hill in Athens, uh, council members were conversing on the subject of a plague which had befallen their city. By the way, if you haven't figured it out yet, we are, we are taking a hiatus, two-week hiatus, for Palm Sunday and Easter uh, from our current series, and we're going we're gonna to come back to that afterwards. But, so there are council members in Athens, and they're talking about this plague that had befallen their city. And they had sent uh, a council member, Nicias, or Nicias, or whatever his name is, to meet with the Apithian oracle, Uh, If you don't know what an oracle is, an oracle is a medium, a spiritual medium that can prophecy about the future or or events and things like that. So they sent this councilman, Nicias, to speak with this Pythian oracle to get some answers by why this plague is here, right? And so Athens at the time was filled with just statues of commemoration to hundreds and hundreds of gods, you know, different gods, all of which they had sacrificed to, to no avail, this plague was still around and plaguing them. (laughs) Uh, But Nicias uh, relayed, he came back and he relayed that the oracle, a priestess, this medium, had said a certain god had placed a curse on the city due to King Megacles' uh, grievous sin of promising amnesty to a group of people, but then he broke his promise and just killed them all. And so they, they had recognized this sin already, and they had made uh, atonement to all these known gods in their city, uh, and, um, and to no avail, as we've said. Uh, but the oracle claimed that there was still one unknown god that they had to, they had to call upon. And so Nicias continued, he said they, they have to go to Knossos, which is uh, you know, on the island of Crete, and they had to find a man named Epimenides, uh, the only guy that was going to be able to help them. And so they did. They sent Nicias there, and he brought him back. And upon arriving in Athens, known as the city of philosophers, right, uh, Epimenides saw the signs of the plague, 
But he also noticed all of the hundreds of statues of gods represented there adorning Mars Hill and all the roads leading up to it and all this kind of stuff. And he asked Nicias about all of these gods who said that they had hundreds and, and, but apparently there was one more that Epimenides would have to tell them about and all that kind of stuff. And then he joked, he even joked about the fact that they had ransacked all the other peoples around them uh, their theology, ransacked their theologies, and how could there be one more God that Athens didn't know about? And um, Epimenides said, well, maybe that's your problem, right? <clears throat> so, as Epimenides uh, entered the council's presence on Mars Hill, he wasted no time. Before they could even say anything, he just started talking, and he said, tomorrow at sunrise, bring here a flock of black and white sheep and a bunch of stonemasons to the grassy slope that it's at the base of this hill. And uh, they have to be healthy sheep, and, and you can't let them eat from now until I tell you. And they've got to be hungry. They've got to be ravenous sheep, right? So the next morning, everybody gathered, and, and Epimenides began. He said, in futility, you guys have sacrificed to all your hundreds of gods, but still there's one more. And although we don't know his name, he must be great enough, and he must be good enough to be able to stop this plague and to understand our ignorance of his presence. And so we're going to call upon his name now, even though we don't know it. And he instructed them at that point to release the sheep in the, in the grass, and, uh, and it being their normal feeding time and being the fact that they hadn't eaten for a day, they would have been ravenous. And if you know sheep, you can't stop them from eating. No doubt they would do it, right? And so he instructed them, let go of the sheep, but watch for certain sheep that will just lay down in the grass and not eat a thing, right? And nobody believed that would happen. And he then prayed to this unknown God, and he asked him to choose among the sheep by causing them uh, to lay down and to not eat anything. You know, which ones that did this God want to be sacrificed? And none, none of the people were expecting any of them to lay down, right? But immediately, a number of the sheep lay down on the grass and they didn't eat a blade of grass, right? So people were dumbfounded. And so Epimenides then instructed them at that point to make an altar where each one of those sheep lay. And since they didn't know the name of this God, uh, he instructed them simply to, to carve agnostotheo on every, each one of those uh, little altars. And that means to an unknown God. And some of you know where I'm going. Uh, they then sacrificed each of those sheep on their respective altars and the change was swift. People suddenly got better, and within a week, all the remnants of the plague were gone. And everybody praised Epimenides, right? But with the passage of time, like with all good stories, this was forgotten, right? And so the altars lay in ruin, and uh, they were covered in weeds. Grass had grown up around them and all that kind of stuff. Rocks had fallen out of them. Until one day, two older council members who had been young men at that day when that had happened recalled the story, and they decided that every one of the altars was beyond repair except for one. So they, they, they called stonemasons over, and they had them repair that one altar, and then they went back to the council, and they retold the story in order to keep it in their tradition, keep it alive. And they were witnesses of it, and they, they, that's what they did. So fast forward, Right? Easter's passed, Jesus has been crucified, he's risen again, he's, he's ascended to heaven, 
And we all know the story of the Apostle Paul. He's traveling in Athens. And Luke records that story in chapter 17 of Acts where, like Epimenides, Paul was greatly distressed, it says, to see that the city was full of idols. So it still was, right? So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks there in Athens, as well as in the marketplace day by day with anybody that happened to be there. So he began, this, the, all these idols bother him, right? And he began with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks in the synagogue because they were most responsible for addressing this rampant idolatry in this city. They had been entrusted with the story of God. They had been entrusted with the scriptures of the one true God, right? And they should be telling that story. But maybe they, which happens, with so, happens so often with many of us, had grown too accustomed with the surrounding culture, too enculturated in it, if you want to say that, and had ceased to share about this one true God, the Hebrew God, so much so that they no longer even knew how to share that story. But then, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with Paul and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, the elite think tank, you know, of all the philosophers and stuff. And Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and he said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. It's a good thing, in a a sense, right? For as I walked around and I looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. In other words, you don't know God's name. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you right now. I'm going to tell you who it is, right? And so beginning with creation, which is interesting that he begins there, right? Because we don't, when we share the gospel, we don't really start with creation. But beginning with creation, Paul told the story up to and including Jesus, his crucifixion, and his resurrection using the Greek term theos as the personal name for God. Something they wouldn't have done. They wouldn't have done that because it's like naming your male child man, right? That's what it's like. The theos to them was just this general term for any god, right? Like man is a term for humankind, right? But Paul was proclaiming him as the one true god of all things, of all the universe. And in doing so, he was saying that all the others represented there, all those little statues, were false. And the philosophers listening to him also would have known that Xenophanes and Plato and Aristotle, the three great philosophers that they knew and loved, all used Theos as a personal name for the one true God in their writings. And so Theos was the only term that was sufficiently unencumbered or unencrusted with with cultural meaning which could communicate who God really was and that's why Paul used that term for God. And when he equated Jesus with Theos, and he spoke of Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his crucifixion and resurrection from the dead, that's when they stumbled, right? That's when they had, a tr- they, they had trouble. Paul had found something within their system that was not of their system, this unknown God. It's like the wrench in all of their work, right? He argued this on the same Mars hill where Epimenides ordered that 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 very altar be made. 
So what we see in this is that Theos had already begun to make himself known to the Athenians six centuries before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. That's pretty cool. And as Paul says to them, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He's quoting Epimenides, who was that prophet that wrote those words. And in Titus chapter 1, Paul even quotes Epimenides again, referring to him in that, that chapter as a prophet. The same word he used for the Old and New Testament prophets of Scripture, which says that he believed this man was bringing people truth 600 years before this that they didn't fully get. They weren't fully listening to. They didn't fully grasp. Paul said to the Athenians, from one man, Adam, right? He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. So this God who, although nameless to them for a time, but never far away from them, was now being named as the person of Jesus. And the end result of that whole discourse was that some of them followed Christ that day, some of them didn't. But one of which was Dionysius, who uh, was a member of the Areopagus at the time, and tradition holds that he became the first bishop of Athens. But why do I tell you all this? Doesn't seem like a Palm Sunday sermon, right? Well, I tell you this because it's interesting to me at least, maybe not to you, but God's been revealing himself throughout history to all people groups, and this is only one story of many. Only one story of many, right? And historically, most have not listened. Historically, most have not listened. His message centers on the sacrifice that he makes for their willful sin and their willful disobedience. A sacrifice to bring healing and protection. Today's Palm Sunday, the day that Jesus wept, right? Since the people at the time didn't understand the reason for his coming. They didn't recognize it. He was revealing himself one more time. But the question is, on that day, who would listen? Who would listen? And today, who's going to listen, right? This is the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem... At the beginning of Passover, which commemorates the time when God sent ten plagues on on, uh, Egypt in order to free the Israelites from slavery 1,440 years earlier, another time that God revealed himself not only to Israel, but also to Egypt, right? And this last plague is recorded in Exodus 12 where it says this, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and I will strike down every firstborn of both people and animals and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. He's judging all the gods there just like he judged all the gods in Athens, right? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Not anybody else, right? The blood will be a sign for you on, that ho- on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. What's, what blood is he referring to? What's he talking about, right? If you've never read these stories, you don't know that. 
Well, in preparation of this Passover, four days before this, every family in Israel was to set aside a perfect sacrificial lamb, and they were to slaughter that lamb, and then they were to mark their lintels and their doorposts of their homes with its blood. Paint it right on there, just like this picture shows you. And up until midnight of Passover, they were to consume the whole lamb, leaving nothing, take in every little bit of it, which says something to us. And Passover, as we know, broke the resolve of Pharaoh, right? Broke his resolve. He let Israel go after this. They left Egypt in such haste that there wasn't even time to let baked bread rise. And so we have this flat, unleavened bread, which is up here today, this matzah, you know, there today. Uh, And that's a reminder of their rapid departure. Exodus 12 even gives instructions on how they're to eat this Passover meal. It says, this is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked in your belt, right? Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. In other words, you're going to be moving out. Eat your meal like a fast food meal, right? It's like you went to McDonald's and you're going through the drive-thru. Get, you're getting out of town, right? So let me recap. Israel's captive. God sent nine plagues thus far. Pharaoh won't let them go. God sends the final plague, killing all the firstborn in Egypt. A little harsh, but, you know, he's God. He can do that. But the Israelites were to paint the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a perfect sacrificial lamb. And as God passes over their homes, seeing that blood, he spares the firstborn of that household. No death comes to that household. And safe inside their homes, the Israelites were to eat the whole sacrifice, every little bit of that lamb. And they're to use unleavened bread since the exodus will happen quickly and they got to be ready to leave and start this new journey, start this new life, coming out of bondage, coming out of slavery. And all of that symbolizes rebirth through the blood of the Lamb. Pretty cool story. And just like in Athens, that this one true God brings healing through the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus protects and satisfies the demands of death which is brought about by our sin before a holy God. And yearly, they commemorate this in a week-long celebration of Passover. It's this setting which Jesus enters into and also this setting which foreshadows him as the final perfect Passover lamb in Luke 19. So Jesus enters Jerusalem at that moment on the back of a donkey at the beginning of Passover, and he whispers of him as the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, are rampant among these people. And I'm saying rampant. It's not just a couple of them thought this. They thought this, right? People are thinking about the Exodus. It is Passover, Right? When they were freed from Egypt. They're hoping that this Messiah delivers them from Roman oppression. Right? Just like Egypt. Just as God delivered them from Egypt. And this, the imagery would, wouldn't go unnoticed. It wouldn't. A conquering king would enter into a city on the back of a donkey as a symbol of his coming in peace, but conquering nonetheless. People are shouting. 
They're laying their cloaks down on the road before him. They're waving palm branches, laying those down and all that kind of stuff. And that is all symbolic of welcoming a king. That's what you do when kings come into your city and they've conquered your city. You lay things down before them. So the hopes that they expressed in him were not at all vague as they shouted the words of Psalm 118, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They knew what they were talking about. The Messiah had come to bring them peace. To free them from Roman oppression. And that's the expectation, but it's not Jesus' intention. Right? Jesus allowed this worship. You've got to understand that. He allowed this worship. He is Lord God. He allowed this worship. It was prophecy fulfilled that he would be presented as Israel's king as expressed in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Uh, of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. Timing's important here with all of this. The religious leaders had planned to arrest Jesus and kill him after Passover in order not to start a riot because they know that he had support. But it seems only Jesus knew, even after everything that he said to his disciples, that he would be slain as the Passover lamb that Passover, that year. But nobody's getting that. John the Baptist seemed to get it. You remember, way in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, well before this, upon seeing Jesus, John pointed to him and said, look, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It is a very clear and unmistakable reference to the Passover Lamb. When, When John said that, everybody knew he's referring to the Passover Lamb. And that's what he called Jesus. Every attempt to arrest Jesus up until that point is thwarted. It's not, his time had not yet come. Now, though, he marches himself right in to the hands of those that would kill him in perfect timing. Accepting the worship of, the, of, a, of a king on the back of a donkey in a spontaneous coronation ceremony. Jesus, you've got to understand this, Jesus was in total an absolute control of this situation. He didn't just get crucified because a bunch of people got together and wanted to kill him. He was in control of it. He brought this about. He was leading this crowd into his own death procession in order for them to understand he was their Passover lamb. He was their salvation. Slain in payment for their sin. So this hope of this celebration is peace, but there can't be peace until God reigns fully. And in that process, there must first come division. Not division among peoples and races, but division on the basis of the Lordship of Christ. Jesus said to his disciples before Passover, I came to cast fire on the earth. And would it... Would would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with. He knows where he's going. And how great is my distress until it's accomplished. I mean, I would be a little distressed. You know, he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Do you think that I have come to give peace, to, to, to give peace on earth? No. I tell you, but rather division. Remember last week, though, we said the ending of the kingdom of God is a full kingdom of peace. But before that, there's going to be division on who Jesus is. So the appeal of Christ wasn't that they would find peace through the overthrow of Rome as expected. There wouldn't be no new exodus that day, right? Rather, if they listened if they listened to the background story, if they listened to his words, if they read the signs, they'd find peace with God through his sacrifice as their Passover lamb. So the appeal is reconciliation between God and man based on Jesus' sacrifice. In Egypt, God was judging the sin of people. Yet, as the blood on the doorpost and the lintel served to avert the angel of death in Egypt, the blood of Christ will cover the sins of the people and it will open up the door of total peace in our hearts and our reconciliation with God. God's judgment upon sin is death. Let's not mistake that. But it would pass over anyone who would receive this final sacrifice of the great Passover lamb up until today and into the future. So as they sit there and they rejoice with all their faulty notions of what peace is, we get a glimpse into Jesus' heart in Luke 19 after he's ridden in on the donkey and it says, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Everybody else is celebrating, right? Saying, Wouldn't, would that you, even you, talking to the city of Jer- uh, Jerusalem there, would that you, even you, n- had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And if you've ever read Josephus, it is a horrible account of that later on. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's referring to the future in A.D. 70 when Rome would kill 600,000 Jews and take many more captive and he would destroy the temple and destroy the city and all that stuff and all because the people didn't get it. They didn't listen. They wouldn't recognize God had visited them that day on a donkey. Death is looming for them. Death is looming for Jesus on that day. He's distressed. He knows many of the same people shouting, blessed is the king, today will turn around and shout crucify him tomorrow. The one true king bringing peace and reconciliation with God by covering their sin had ridden into the city on the back of a donkey. It's unheard of. It's unheard of. It's almost crazy. It's almost unbelievable. The great and last Passover lamb had come who takes away the sin of the world. Right? And when that temple was destroyed, the whole sacrificial system went away because there's no need for foreshadowing Jesus, foreshadowing the Messiah, foreshadowing the Christ anymore when the final Passover lamb has already been sacrificed. 
All that was to show him why keep doing it. The deal was done for anyone who would come under the covering of his blood, allowing the judgment of God to pass over them. That's how much God loves us. And Jesus weeps there on the side of the hill. And he sees all the false expectations. And he knows they won't recognize his revelation that day. God had sent Jonah to Nineveh, right? Jonah had expected God to destroy Nineveh. God saved it. God entered Jerusalem on a donkey. They expected he would break the back of Roman impression, and God came to save it too. Jesus weeps since Jerusalem destroys itself by not embracing the moment of his coming. And he wept because he extends the greatest of gifts, himself, his life, and somebody, somebody would simply not even pay attention to it. John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Sometimes we're too familiar with things, right? Then in Luke 19.14, Jesus predicts their betrayal in a parable about a leader who went away to be crowned king. And he's leaving his people there with a financial gift to steward while he's gone. And he was, uh, while he was away, the people sent a delegation saying, we will not have this man reign over us. We don't want him as king, right? But he was pronounced king anyway, and he comes back, you know. And, but, so, but since some didn't regard him as king, right, they did nothing with the gift while he was away. And he told that parable just before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jesus would soon go away to his death for three days in the tomb. But he would return crowned as king by his resurrection. Will he find them to cherish and to nurture the gift that he had left them or to disregard it? Will the altar grow into disrepair on the side of the hill? Will we who shout, blessed is the king, turn around and say, crucify him next week? So in the midst of all this self-centered celebration, this greed and this power play and this disregard and shallowness, Jesus weeps, knowing people don't get it. Yet still, he faces the cross. Still, he goes to the cross, submitting to its pain for them. He knew their hearts. He knows our hearts. While everyone else out there is celebrating, he weeps, longing for people to recognize this gift of God riding in on a donkey. He longed for them to stop looking down at their political situation and look up to him. Does that sound familiar? Will we stand ready and take in the whole Lamb of God and all that he brings to us and all that he commands of us? Will we grasp hold of his lordship? Today we're going to celebrate communion and that is a version of the Passover meal. Celebrating his sacrifice as the Passover lamb by symbolically ingesting the blood and the flesh of Christ. God's been revealing himself all throughout history to all people groups across the world. Every Nation, every people group out there has a redemptive analogy that God has put within their, board, their cultural borders. He did it to Athens twice. 
And Jesus did the same at Passover. Some got it, some didn't. He's done, so, done this so many in so many ways throughout history, it's, it's, we can't count. Maybe, maybe, maybe just today, maybe he's revealing himself to you right now. Maybe for the very first time, he's summoning you to recognize the gift of the Passover lamb in this ancient but real story. You've never ever considered, you've never thought about these words, you've never considered that everything in the story of God leads here to this moment, this morning, right now, to this table, to these words, to this Passover, to Jesus, to this Easter. You've never considered your own sin for which Jesus died. You never thought about that. Sin's not even your daily vocabulary. You've not even considered your need for God until right now, this moment. Believe me, I've sat in churches when I was younger and I wasn't a Christian and the pastor preached and I wanted so much to give my life at that moment. Maybe Jesus has been a vague concept of God with no real name for you up until this very moment. But now he's named himself for you. And you've got to respond. You've got to respond. You can't be confronted to it with it and not respond. It is time for that to happen. Take the step right now into relationship with Jesus. All you have to do is bow your head and ask, Jesus, be Lord and Savior of my life at this very moment. As a matter of fact, let's bow our heads. And for those of you that have made that decision, start praying for somebody in this room that hasn't. And for those of you that haven't, I want to challenge you. Let me pray for you. Father, we ask that you would come here right now in the power of your spirit and that you would convict hearts like you convicted mine when I was 21 years old. Like if you convicted Vinny and Mary, I remember their They came to know you separately in different parts of the country and called each other and said, you'll never believe what just happened to me. All of us in here have our story. I pray that you would convict hearts right now. If you are sitting here this morning and you are feeling like God is calling you to give your life to him, just say those words, Jesus, come be Lord and Savior of my life right now. Amen. If you said those words, I want you to do a couple of things. I want you to come and tell somebody. I want you to tell me or tell somebody else you see up here with the prayer ministry or whatever. Um, And I want you to come and enjoy the table for the very first time maybe. To take in symbolically what has just happened to you. And if you want, if you're, if you're not fully there yet and you want somebody to help you walk through that prayer, come up here from now until the end of the service and somebody will take you into that prayer room and walk, walk it out with you and they will, they will pray with you, right? For others of you sitting here this morning, your altar might be in disrepair, right? Weeds may have grown up. In your life, you, the mortar is turning to dust. A rock has fallen out here or there or whatever. And you know the, this old story. You've heard it. 
You've accepted it, but you've forgotten to pay attention to it, right? Jesus calls you back. He calls you back, back into vibrant, life-giving relationship with Him. Into an active and purposeful life of kingdom building alongside your spiritual father, alongside Jesus. And if that's you, I want you to grab somebody or come up front to the prayer ministry and pray a prayer of rededication this morning. Start again. Get rid of whatever it is in your life that is standing away between you and Jesus. Sacrifice that on that altar, right? Don't walk away this morning without repairing the altar of Christ in your life. Don't let one more weed grow up. Because you know what? I had a phenomenal week. It was one of the hardest weeks I've had in a long time. But kingdom-wise, it was beautiful. I love the adventure of faith. Get back in the game, right?